All right, here we go, folks. Let's pray. Get with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12, where we are making our way verse by verse through the Old Testament. We started at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We find ourselves now in the middle of the book of 1 Samuel and the beginning of the first uh, king of Israel, his reign. All right, as you make your way to chapter 12, I'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, in this uh, chapter where Samuel is giving his farewell speech, there are some rich truths and valuable insights for us as Christians who uh, are called according to your purpose to love God and shine our lights for you. Help us to uh, grasp what the Holy Spirit is saying through this portion of Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty, so newly appointed King Saul has passed his first test, and to the surprise of many who doubted uh, that Saul might have what it takes to be a warrior king, this fledgling king has now led Israel to a resounding victory. Last chapter, over an aggressing army, the godless Ammonites, and led by King Nahash, As we saw last week, his name means serpent, and with God's help, King Saul has sent the snake and his vast army slithering for the hills. And so now, uh, King Saul has shown that he's more than just a pretty face. You know, uh, all of those verses that say how handsome and tall and impressive he is outwardly and from a well-to-do family, Uh, but could he deliver the goods? And last chapter, we found out that he could indeed rally troops, uh, strategize in warfare, and fight to the death. And uh, so the answer to that question uh, is yes. The other question was, was God with this guy? And the answer was, yes, God was with Saul. Now the question, of course, And the question that is always so important, is Saul with God? Now, on a broader note, the question will be in this chapter, will God's people now look to King Saul for all of their deliverances and needs? Or will they remember that they have one king and one king only, and that is the Lord? So the framework for our spiritual application for this chapter, the question you should be asking yourself is, who is your king? Is the Lord your king? There's a lot of things in our lives that, that are right things, authorities and relationships, careers and, and money and, and spouses, but Truly, nothing can take the place of God, and God always has to be first and foremost in our lives. So we're asking the question tonight, is the Lord truly our king? So after this decisive uh, victory last chapter and a display of God's obvious endorsement of King Saul, Samuel, now ready to leave the scene, wisely wants to have a rededication service, an official coronation of King Saul, now that the troops are gathered and the morale is high. And more importantly, now as we look at chapter 12, Samuel realizes it's his final opportunity to speak to Israel 
and her new king to get their spiritual priorities straight, to lay a good foundation for this new turn of events because now they've gone from, uh, from judges to a monarchy and it's a whole new era. They've made a, made a very bad choice to have a monarchy. They've insisted on a king and the Lord has allowed that in, her, in his permissive will, but there's hope. So the purpose of this chapter then is going forward in blessing in the context of having made bad decisions. That's the whole point of chapter 12. How do you go forward in the context of having totally missed God's will and chosen the lesser uh, of two things uh, and, and made a big, uh, a poor choice? How do you go forward from there to find God's blessing? Because indeed there is blessing, but you have to do it the right way. And so chapter 12 is really going to show us, look, Israel, you've really blown it, but there's hope. Verses 1 through 5. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and gray and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I've done any of these, I'll make it right. You've not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. So Roman numeral number one, this blunder isn't Samuel's fault. And the blunder that I'm referring to is the rejection of the Lord as their king for the choice of a human being to reign over them. You'll remember, we want a king like everybody else has, somebody we can look to and be proud of, somebody we could boast about, somebody who would fight all of our battles. We're tired of the invisible God who's up there somewhere. We want somebody waving to us from a royal palace for crying out loud like everybody else. And so this was a terrible blunder. And first of all, in order for you to make the most after you have had a blunder is to realize what a bad idea it was in the first place. So this is Samuel's thrust in this chapter. First of all, Israel has to understand this is a blunder and it's not Samuel's fault. He's going to go through the list of whose fault it isn't so that they can deduce that they have to own their own responsibility in this terrible matter. For until you realize you've made a dumb move, you can't take any action to fix it. So that's really the idea behind this, these opening verses here. Samuel's speech is going to show Israel they've done a really dumb thing. 
a really unnecessary move. The Lord was doing a fine job along with the judges. And he's Samuel's the last in line of those judges, but it had worked well for 500 years. There was no need for this request for a human king. Uh, you know, Samuel's kind of teaching this. If, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Why did you go and ruin everything? You panicked. And you rejected God, and instead of handling a challenge biblically with self-control and wisdom, you opted out for the visible, for the temporal, instead of the unseen and the eternal. Uh, that was a weak choice, and so he has to convince them, first of all, it, I'm clean, he's going to say. Uh, nothing about my leadership caused you to be disgruntled enough to do this terrible thing. In case somebody's going to say, you know, it was because of Samuel that we had to look for a king. And so uh, the Israelites were just through with having to uh, have judges, you see, because the Lord was their king and the judges would appear ad hoc, you know, just as God needed some help, he'd raise up somebody. But Israel never knew who that would be. So it was perfect because they had to depend and trust in God himself. In fact, when he raised up one judge, it wasn't the judge's son that was raised up after him. So they just had to always look to God instead of looking to a king and his son and his son after that. And they said, we're tired of that. It's too much work. It's too much uh, needing to have faith. We don't want that. We just want just make it easy for us, God, and give us a king. And so clearly in these opening verses, Samuel's disappointed. And you know what? He was hurt there in 1 Samuel 8 when all of this give us a king nonsense started. You'll remember uh, he, he passed it along, Samuel, that is, to the Lord about their chanting for a king. And the Lord answered him this way. He said, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not, this is 1 Samuel 8, it is not you they've rejected, Samuel. They've rejected me as their king. And as they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they're doing that to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, solemnly and let them know what the king who they want with all their hearts will, who will reign over them, what he will do to them. So often the things we imagine that we can't live without uh, make our lives so much more difficult and less enjoyable. So Samuel here wants Israel to transition well. In spite of the bad move, Israel can make the best of a poor decision. It's a tougher road, but there's still a way to be blessed. But first, you must realize you made a big mistake. There was no need for this decision, especially under my rule, he's saying. He's saying, I didn't give you any cause for dissatisfaction, did I? This was your crazy idea. Here's a paraphrase of the opening verses. Your current situation, Israel? It's all you're doing. Not God's best idea and certainly not my idea. Now you have your king and things will never be the same. So a shortcut to rectify any missteps spiritually for believers is number one, own your part. Number two, make no excuses. And number three, admit your guilt. Now, uh, he's saying this was your misguided idea 
folks and he says my hands are clean so here he goes in verses one and two he's saying i've done my best over a lifetime here i am i'm old and gray uh the boys my sons disqualified themselves by their own corruption they sit here among you they might have replaced me that would have been nice but that's not god's will he they are off the platform and in the congregation it says in your text there he says, I've served you since my mother, Hannah, brought me to the tabernacle as a miracle baby. She conceived me and, and gave me up there in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 28. And I've been serving ever since. And then suddenly everything takes a rather harsh turn, doesn't it? He starts kind of questioning them in kind of an awkward self-justification tirade. Uh, that's what it seems to us anyway, and courtroom language is being used and, and uh, with Samuel as the accused. And he says, go ahead and testify against me. Uh, let's just all admit that it was, wasn't bad leadership that prompted your misguided request. That's really what he's getting at here. So to drive that point home and to help Israel come to terms with her own responsibility for what happened, he starts to vindicate his own ministry. He says, let's have a quick trial here. God's here. I'll be the defendant. Go ahead and prosecute me. Okay, go ahead and testify to God to me in front of all of Israel how bad you guys had it. Verses three through four. Was I getting rich off of you? Was I taking bribes? Was I cheating you? Were you being oppressed? Was I leading you astray? Were you misguided under my leadership? Did I lie to you? Did I rip you off? If I did, tell me and I'll make it right. Verse 5, they respond. You, you've, uh, he says, rather, you found nothing in my hand, meaning, like, check my tent. Go back in my dresser drawers. Check my bank account. I'm clean. Bottom line, he says, you had it good under a capable leader. You didn't need to bellyache for a king. Here's a good uh, comment from a writer uh, who has a commentary on the book of 1 Samuel. He says, this is more than a self-righteous rant about how good Samuel was. Instead, it's a foolproof argument that Israel's asking for a king was 100% without merit and uncalled for. So he says, you had an okay leader, right? That's what he's saying, right? Can I get a right? That's what he wants to hear. He wants a right, and he gets a right. In verse 5, he says, they say, you haven't done any of those things. The Lord is witness. You've done none of the, those things. And so why did he have to work so hard to kind of get them to see that? Well, you know, in the prodigal son story in Luke 15, do you notice that the father doesn't need to go down a list of all the ways the prodigal sinned against him and disgraced them and all the ways that he was a good father, unless, of course, the prodigal is still unconvinced. So true repentance is not happening for Israel, and that's why Samuel has to bring him into the courtroom and say, hey, it wasn't me, it wasn't my idea, and it was nothing I was lacking. That's check number one. And so, okay, it wasn't Samuel. It wasn't his flawed leadership. Uh, maybe it was the Lord's fault. 
So he moves on to 6 through 12. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. Verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent, that's another name for Gideon, Jerub, Baal, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. He's speaking of himself there in third person. And he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side so that you live securely. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, last chapter, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord was your God and your king. So Roman numeral number two, we find out the blunder isn't Samuel's fault, and clearly now Roman numeral number two, the blunder isn't God's fault. Now, interestingly, Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 3, it says, A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. So Samuel knows that they're going to have a tendency to put this on God, and so Samuel goes back to Exodus chapter 1, and retraces five centuries of the history of a God who never let them down. So now the courtroom scene has shifted. Samuel has been cleared of all charges, and now he goes from being the defendant to the prosecutor, and guess who's in the hot seat now? Israel. And he's saying, in, a, in, in essence here, paraphrase, okay, Let's go back to when the Lord busted you guys out of Egypt. He raised up Moses and his brother Aaron 500 years ago. Now get ready. I'm going to confront you with the cold, hard facts, the evidence how God has really been good to you. So he's going to get to the, the point here is how could you do such a thing? There was no reason for it. God has been faithful to you for 500 years. Let's talk about this a little bit and see in light of God's faithfulness how silly it is to find a substitute savior to opt out of God saving you and God being your king for somebody less than him in light of the, his past faithfulness. How silly that is. So verse 7, he says, I'm going to list his righteous acts, your text says, that God has performed for you. It means this that I'm going to remind you of all the ways God has made your path right. In other words, has rescued you, who has come through for you, and all the ways God's, God has saved you. So he's saying there in verse 8, let's remember, our ancestors were helpless. They came to Egypt. Uh, Jacob and the first 70 Jews came down to Egypt. He says, our forefathers 
They became a nation in slave pits for 400 years, helplessly crying out to God, and God delivered them and brought them here to this land, the promised land. So here's what, is, what he's getting at. The exodus from Egypt went pretty well without a human king. Didn't it, Israel? So he's saying, two million of us Jews, helpless. We didn't even have any weapons. We had chains on. And who came to our defense? Who came to your defense? A king? You didn't have a king. Who was your king? It was God. Where was your human king who, when, when the Nile was hemorrhaging? Where, where was the human king when the frogs and the lice and the gnats and the flies were swarming and infesting and taking dominion over Egypt? Was it a human king that caused all of Egyptian livestock to drop? Was it a human king who brought darkness on the earth for three days, a darkness the scriptures say you could feel? Was it a human king who sent a death angel to strike down the firstborn of all of Egypt? And and was it a human king that kept light in the land of Goshen and all of the Israelis' uh, animals from dying, and all uh, no plague going on in, in the land of Goshen where the Israels, Israelites were. So he's saying, please recall the supernatural plagues that destroyed Egypt like a nuclear holocaust came from the Lord who was your king. The miraculous provision getting you to this land, the manna, Bread from heaven for crying out loud. Water from a rock. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 that the rock followed them. And that rock was Christ. The seed parting for you. The pillar of fire. The cloud of glory that led you. Moses says in Deuteronomy, what other nation could call God their king and them his own people? And you traded all of that in for a guy, for a man with breath in his nostrils. He's standing right there. He can't even keep himself alive. You traded the glory of God for a man. Come on. And that's what we do every time we make the trade. Every time we sell out and compromise in sin and, 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 and invest in something unbecoming of the Christian life and devotion to Christ, it's as pathetic as that. And worse, because of our knowledge and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So verses 9 and 10, uh, the paraphrase, he's saying, once we were here in the land, we got lazy and careless and rebellious, and that got us into trouble. We forgot God. We worshiped the idols and the gods of the pagans. So the Lord used the Philistine army and the Moabites to bring us back to our senses. We cried out, repented, prayed, and God saved us. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, even when we got here, God managed to get the two million of us here uh, without the human king. And when we were in trouble, it was usually our own fault. But when we repented, God saved us. And he said, so what did he do? He would bring up judges, Gideon, Barak, uh, Jephthah, and me, 
Samuel, just to name four. But God always came through. And then he says there in your verse 11, and he let us enjoy peace and prosperity on all sides. And then verse 12, and then it happened. You guys panicked. And now we find out why they asked for a king. We didn't know this. It just says they were keep on asking for a king. But now we know what prompted that. Verse 12, then it happened. You panicked. King Nahash, the serpent, that's his name, threatened to attack. And you guys buckled. You said to me, Samuel, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord was king. Now here's your king, and he's standing right over there. I love what one commentator said. What a weak and pathetic thing believers do when they opt for the seen instead of the unseen, the world's way instead of God's, the temporary instead of the eternal. Dear people of God, learn to handle sudden challenges and threatening situations biblically with wisdom, in prayer, with self-control and holiness. Mature Christians weather the storms with faith and continued obedience. Immature Christians don't. I love Proverbs verse uh, 10 of chapter 24, where it says, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? And I always think of that as saying, really, people of God? A, l- a little storm comes and you fall to pieces. This king comes up to Israel and they say, listen, we're done with God being our king. We need a guy. We need a guy to stand up, a really tall one. Somebody's good looking and has charisma. We don't need the pillar of fire anymore. We never know when he shows up. And when he does, it's always the last possible second. <laughs> but he shows up, doesn't he? Well, they're tired of that. So it's not God's fault. It's Samuel's clean. The, the system God had in place was working well. Long story short, Israel has played the fool, and life now will never be the same because God gave them what they wanted. Uh, And here comes some good news, the last part, uh, number three. So number one was the blunder isn't Samuel's fault. Number two, the blunder isn't the Lord's fault. And number three, the blunder of choosing a king isn't without remedy. It's not unfixable. Let's finish up. We'll read a little bit at a time now. Verse 13. Now here is the king that you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Now if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord, your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, And if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now, uh, there's a whole bunch of, I can see about a dozen, and I'm going to name eight. But I'm going to give you eight things, eight remedies for when you have blown it or made some mistakes with the Lord. Because there's a whole bunch of things that will bring you hope. 
and bring you blessing. And number one here is remember God's mercy. Now, here's what David Guzik, who's a pastor, uh, wrote about this. One wrong turn had not put them out of God's plan forever. Yes, Israel should never have sought a human king, but now they had one, and Samuel simply calls them to serve the Lord where they are now. We need to know that one wrong turn doesn't wreck our lives before God. Instead of agonizing over the past, get right with God today. He says in the text, fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord and God will bring good even out of yesterday's wrong turns. And number two in this text I see is remember God's commands. He says, now listen, you have a king now, but if you and this king recognize that you have a real king, it'll still work. And so it's funny saying, if your king can just be irrelevant to you and you can understand, yes, we have a king and we've asked for a king, but he's not really the king. He's the king. He says, fine, good, it'll work. We can make this thing work. And that's the passion of God saying, listen, don't give up. You've made some mistakes, but you're my people and I'm for you. And I want you to choose this day well. You don't have to say, well, I've blown it this way. I might as well just drop out forever and quit trying, which is the tendency of a lot of people when they make a mistake, spiritually speaking. And that's not wise because God says, while there's breath in you, there's mercy every morning. They're new every day. Great is his faithfulness. Do not give up. Now, 16 through the following now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. It is not, isn't it wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel, the people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die for we have added to all of our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Finally, a confession. That's what we've been looking for for five chapters. It would have been so easy five chapters ago just to have said that one line. It would have fast forwarded through a lot of problems. He's just trying to get them to admit the truth. Here's how you know Israel still wasn't convinced that they had done something wrong. Samuel sensed it and said, listen, you, you think you're still okay? You're saying all the right words, but listen, I know it's the dry season right now. Oh, well, I'm going to pray down a thunderstorm right now so that you will know that you did a wrong thing. And so he prays down a storm. And now they're convinced, okay, pray, because we're all going to die here. Save us. And you know, uh, more impressive to me than the thunderstorm out of season is the way the Holy Spirit convicts us in our hearts and how he pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and does an inner work that convinces me of my need for him and his great love and grace for me. An inner work is more amazing 
than any outer work, no matter how impressive it is. Let's say that one more time. The inner work of the Holy Spirit is more fascinating and intriguing and supernaturally amazing to me that he can touch our hearts and convict us and show us his love and make a man or a woman want to serve him, not because of fear of thunder and lightning, but out of a love and a conviction of spirit and a change of heart. Only God can make us new inside and, 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 and a desire to want to be different. And I'm finishing up here. So, oh, number three was remember the thunder. It helps. You know what uh, the Proverbs say, uh, the fear of the Lord, through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. That's Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6. So remember the thunder. The three of them so far, remember God's mercy, remember God's commands, remember the thunder, and now let's finish up. So don't be afraid. Well, after he just called down the lightning and thunder. Don't be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they're useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. So number four in the steps to blessing in the context of having made mistakes would be remember the uselessness of idols. If we could remember before we sin and fast forward the tape and think of the emptiness and the guilt and the frustration that substitute saviors create, we would go after them a lot less. Verse 22 brings you step number five. Remember God's faithfulness. He, he wants to see you through. Uh, I love this verse here, number 22. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, for the Lord was pleased to make you his own. You know, sometimes I feel like a big mess, that I don't have it all together, I don't have all the answers, and I feel as a pastor who knows the truth, how I often fall short of the ideals in this book that I study all the time. But you know what? And I say this to the Lord in prayer a lot. I may be a mess, but I'm your mess, Lord. <laughs> I feel that. I know that. I know that, that in me no good thing dwells, as Romans chapter 7 says. And, and I know how how vulnerable I am and we all are so frail and weak and one minute we're praising the Lord or we're on our way to church, the next minute we're fighting with our spouses in the car or we're threatening our children in the back seat. <laughs> Rightfully so in most cases. So remember God's faithfulness. 
He's for you. He proved that. He's got marks on his hands. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands before he even went to the cross. In the Old Testament, he says that. And um, verse 23, step six, remember someone's praying for you. He says, look, I, you know, you've, done, you've really messed up here, but I'm not, I, you've got a new king, but I'm going to be praying for you. It's a beautiful thing to know somebody is praying for you. And you're thinking, well, nobody's praying for me, but you know what? If you're a Christian, Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's praying for you. Jesus told Peter, hey, the devil's after you big time, but I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. And it didn't fail. He stumbled, but it did not fail. The Lord is praying for you. Remember that. Number seven is verse 24. Remember the great things God has done for you. All of our Christian service and all of our obedience, all of our love for God should be put in this context of a response to the great things God has done for us. We do our Christian service and Christian devotion not so that God will do great things for us. We don't serve God to persuade him to do good things toward us. He has already done the great things and asked us to receive them by faith. Then we serve him because of the great things he has done for us. And sadly, after all of this, um, Commentator Clark says, never was a people more fully warned and never did a people profit less by the warning. Israel's going to stay. What is it? It's 1,000 B.C. They're going to get to live uh, 900, 800, 700, 230 years. And then Iraq is coming in. They're going to pull them out. Northern Iraq and then southern Iraq, 200 years later, will get the two remaining tribes. Because they don't listen. They don't listen. May I just look at that and just learn from that and just say, they don't listen. And it didn't go well with them. I want to listen so that I'll be blessed. That's really not that hard. <laughs> and the last one, verse 25, serve God and be blessed. Persist in evil, be swept away. So step number eight, remember the choice is yours. Serve God, be blessed, persist in evil, and be swept away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter, this wonderful insights and the hope that, Father, even though we've all made mistakes, there's always a way to be blessed. You said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So help us take these truths to heart and let the hope burn bright in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.